This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number nine, recorded on May 12th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-hosts, Jim Geller. Dr. Jim, thanks for being here. Pleasure. Dr. Raj Nagarajan. Raj, thanks for being here. It's awesome. And Dr. Lionel Chow. Lionel, thanks for coming. I'm really excited about today's podcast. Great. So today on TWIPO, we will be talking with Dr. Peter Adamson, who's the current chair of the Children's Oncology Group. He's joining us by Skype. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Thanks, Tim. Just to remind our audience, if you have questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you're listening to it a long time from now, as long as we're still around, please feel free to email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. We'd be happy to read your email and discuss it during a future episode. So let's get right to the meat of today. Uh, Dr. Adamson is the chief in the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Director of Experimental Therapeutics in Oncology, and a Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Again, because of his position as Chair of the Children's Oncology Group, we wanted to focus our discussion today on on his role there. But Peter, just to begin, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up, and how did you get interested in medicine? Sure. I grew up... uh in New York, uh, just on the Connecticut border, and probably came uh, to medicine sometime during my undergraduate years at uh, Wesleyan University. Was very interested in science uh, and chemistry, uh, but did not envision myself spending my entire career in the laboratory. So after Wesleyan University, I went to Cornell University School of Medicine. Then I came to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to do my pediatric training. Spent 10 years at the Pediatric Oncology Branch of the National Cancer Institute, where I did my subspecialty training and stayed on as uh, an investigator and clinician there, and came back to the Children's Hospital about 12 years ago to set up a drug development program in pediatrics as well as experimental therapeutics in pediatric oncology. So were there any particular patients or mentors that really tripped your trigger during that time and made you want to do this kind of a career? Well, my interest... Once I went into medicine, I was pretty committed to pediatrics relatively early on, and that was because of uh, past experiences with working with children in a number of different settings. And I think pediatric oncology also came both from uh, parent and, and child experiences. It's one of the few subspecialties where I think you have the opportunity to form uh, long-lasting relationships with children and their families. Uh, Mentor-wise, I've been very fortunate all along the way as far as who would mentor me. I think uh, it began in medical school during a medicine rotation where I think I learned very early on that every patient needs an advocate. And that really has turned out to be true, I think, in all my time, both uh, in training as well as in, in practice. In fellowship, however, I was uh, most fortunate to have trained under 
Phil Pizzo, David Poplack, and Frank Bayless, all leaders in our field and was given uh, some tremendous opportunities along the way. During residency and then when I came back to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, probably the two that stand out are Audrey Evans and Dan Dangio, really uh, two of the uh, lead people in the entire field uh, in developing curative treatments for a number of different cancers, including uh, children with Wilms tumor. So I've been very fortunate, Tim, along the way that I've had a lot of uh, great mentors as well as some very positive interactions with children and their families. Yeah, it's, you know, we just had the Kentucky Derby here not too long ago. It sounds like you have quite a championship pedigree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been fortunate, that's for sure. And any particular lessons from any specific patients along the way? Well, I think certainly over the years what has uh, turned out to be probably the most important thing is to, is to listen. Uh, and listen first to children because children really can give you all the critical information you may need as you try to make a diagnosis, try to guide therapy, as, as well as then to, to parents. Um, it may become uh, routine for us as we care for sick children, but it's anything but routine for the children and families we care for. And every family brings a different amount of information with them when they come into clinic, different anxieties, different concerns. And so listening is probably the most important thing that one can do as a pediatric oncologist. And that's certainly something that I uh, work with the people I train. I think the second lesson is one of the hardest things to do for a, a patient and family is to wait for news. Um, be it for the results of a test, um, CAT scan, MRI, a laboratory test, there is probably nothing more anxiety-provoking than waiting for the news. Once you have the news, you can develop a plan, but it's that, that period of time between you know a diagnostic test was performed and you're waiting for the result that is probably one of the most stressful for our families. So the lesson uh, that I've learned, and again, that I try to teach, is always make sure you communicate results back to families as soon as those results become available. Be it good news or bad news, uh, little is worse than waiting and the uncertainty that accompanies that. Yeah, that's very, very good point. Absolutely. Um, Peter, a question. Um, um, now that you're... Uh, chair of COG, uh, certainly you can speak uh, to, to the organization itself, but not all of our listeners uh, fully understand the role of the COG, what it is, why it exists. Uh, would you mind commenting on uh, what you perceive the COG to be and perhaps describe its purpose? Sure. The Children's Oncology Group, or short-term, as you said, Jim, COG, is a consortium of just over 220 centers, primarily in the United States and Canada, but also Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Europe. And these are centers that came together um, a little more than 50 years ago. Although the COG is only 10 years old, our predecessor organizations stretch back more than 50 years. And it was really the forethought of pediatric oncologists 
during the late 50s and early 60s that realized that unless physicians and scientists worked together, we were not going to make progress. And ultimately what emerged, what is called a cooperative group, where all the uh, major trials, phase two or phase three, are performed in a collaborative manner. So if a child is diagnosed in Nebraska or in Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, or Cincinnati, the research protocol that's available to those children is the same, no matter where they are. So the COG performs just over 100 different clinical trials covering the landscape of childhood cancer and is really one of the cornerstones of research that has led to the improvement in care over the years. So overall, COG has about 5,000 members that range from doctors and scientists to nurses, pharmacists, social workers, all joining together to try to improve the outcome. That's a huge group. How do you uh, keep a handle on everything that's going on? Well, the key is to get good people to work with you. And they have been very fortunate. We have so many talented people in the organization, both within administration as well as doctors and nurses throughout uh, North America. So the key is uh, to match people's skills and talents with the work that needs to get done and then let them go do their job because invariably they know how to do it well. It's probably good, good advice for any management team. So uh, this is Lionel here, uh, Peter. So uh, just uh, for our listeners, prior to becoming uh, chair of COG, you mentioned that you were at CHOP for the last 12 years and set up an experimental uh, and developmental therapeutics um, uh, center there. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the uh, highlights uh, during the last 12 years uh, that you've been able to uh, um, uh, oversee with that group? Sure. So the work that most of my research uh, and the work that we've done has focused on bringing new therapies into children with cancer. And in general, these therapies are tested in children for whom the standard therapies are are no longer or never were effective. The work of the laboratory has been to understand the pharmacology of these drugs, and by that we mean what happens to the drug after you give it, and to try to, from that, think of the best way to give different drugs to children. As the adage, a child is not just a small adult, is very true. Children's growth and metabolism very much influence what happens to the medications we use. So a focus of our laboratory over many years was to optimize the drugs that we've had available as well as to study the new drugs that were coming through the pipeline. I think uh, there are many examples of new drugs that we've studied, uh, but perhaps what's most exciting right now is looking over the next five to ten years the tools we have at hand right now to discover some of the underlying processes that lead to childhood cancer and potentially will lead to new therapies is a very exciting time because the pace of discovery is going to be greater than anything we've realized in in, in many, many years. I think the two areas historically that we worked on, probably one of my earlier areas was the study of the pharmacology of retinoids. Now, retinoids, as you know, are... uh, part of the uh, vitamin A family, and it turned out for a very rare form of leukemia 
called acute promyelocytic leukemia, or APL. Vitamin A, in this particular form, called retinoic acid, is an incredibly effective treatment. And it turned out that the pharmacology of uh, retinoic acid was very unusual. And a lot of the work that we did led to using retinoic acid in a much more effective way. And it contributed, uh, in part, to transforming what was a very difficult-to-treat leukemia into a leukemia right now with a very good outcome. So that was very gratifying to apply uh, laboratory work and impact uh, directly impact how we treat uh, both children and adults with that type of leukemia. I think more recently, one thing that we've been trying to determine is how can we more efficiently study new drugs in what's called early phase testing so we can move them forward and really determine are they going to improve the outcome for children. So with a number of uh, colleagues, including Jeff Barrett and Jeffrey Skolnick, we developed a new type of trial design for early phase studies that we believe uh, is going to shorten the time it actually takes to complete those studies. So those are uh, two examples, both one a, a method and then one very particular with a type of drug that was developed that come to mind when you ask the question. Would you mind expanding on that trial design a bit more? Sure. So the design, uh, we called it the rolling six method, um, and it's for phase one trials. So phase one trials are the first clinical trial. Uh, it first occurs in adults, and then ultimately we can start it uh, in children uh, with relapsed or refractory or difficult-to-treat cancer. And the goal of phase one is really to determine the best dose for the drug that can be used as we move forward in testing. And what happened historically, and to some extent still happens, is we treat small groups of children, uh, meaning three children at a time, to make certain we're understanding everything we need to know at that dose before deciding whether we should increase a dose, stay the same, or potentially decrease a dose. And so the bulk of time that we were spending would be we're waiting for information to come back. And what we ended up doing is because we know that we will always study more than three children at a particular dose, we looked back at a little more than 20 years of data and developed a, a computer model that could simulate if we changed how we did this and instead of waiting uh, after three patients, treat simply from three to six at a time, um, we were able to simulate what would actually happen? Would it put more children at risk, yes or no? Would it, in fact, be a more efficient process? And what we learned is we wouldn't be putting more children at risk, and it would, in fact, increase the efficiency. So through rather powerful compu commu uh, computer modeling coupled with a, a lot of data, we were able to change, and the FDA has accepted, this trial design for uh, new drugs in children with cancer. Is that being used in the adult world as well? Well, it, it is not being used in the adult world because the adults have a different set of challenges. Uh, adult phase one trials generally start at extremely low doses, and often those doses uh, are very unlikely to have uh, any effect. In pediatrics, we start 
based on the doses in adults that either had an effect or uh, were producing evidence that they should have an effect. So we start at much higher doses, and therefore we don't have to study as many, uh, as many dose levels as the adults do. So it's because of our ability to use the information from adult trials that allows us to use this design. It wouldn't uh, necessarily work as effectively or efficiently in adult trials that start at very low doses. So one of the goals of the Solving Kids Cancer organization that sponsors this podcast is to try to help fund projects that are developing drugs specifically for pediatric cancer, so perhaps new new drugs that haven't been tested in adults based on unique biology in children's cancer. So do you think we wouldn't be able to use this design then? I guess it would probably depend on what the agent is and what's known about it. I think that that's right. Um, although uh, the earliest anti-cancer drugs were, in fact, studied in children in the 40s and 50s with drugs similar to methotrexate or 6 mercaptopurine, the drugs that we treat for children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, for the past several decades, uh, with few, if any, exceptions, uh, cancer drugs are first studied in adult patients uh, to get the initial safety testing. I think uh, we may well find a time uh, in the not-too-distant future when the drug is actually highly specific to a childhood cancer and uh, does not um, have a role in an adult cancer. And, and in that case, it would very much depend on what type of drug it was, what type of side effects we were going to predict as to how efficiently we could move it forward into children with cancer. Sure, that makes sense. So, uh, uh, Peter, you know, um, you know, I think some of the listeners know, you know, might not know, but, you know, there's only very few uh, pediatric cancers. There's only about 12,000, over 12,000 per year diagnosed in the United States. And that's, you know, may sound like a lot, but certainly is relatively few compared to adults where there's, you know, over 1 in 1.4 million or so. But given the smaller numbers in pediatric patients, you know, and with some of those smaller pediatric diagnostic groups or patients who have failed uh, standard therapies, you know, what do you think we need to do to be able to identify which patients are most likely to respond to certain therapies or um treatment plans, you know, you know, what kind of ways do you think or strategies do you think we can do to address some of these smaller groups where we don't have large numbers? The key over the next five years or so is going to be to invest in understanding the biology of childhood cancer. In other words, what are the genetic changes that lead to any specific cancer? What are the potential vulnerabilities uh, of changes that occur in the cancer cell that we can take advantage for? But to couple that with how children with those cancers actually fare with current treatment. So to couple the biology with the outcome. I think the tools that we have and that are rapidly developing to study the biology are changing at an incredible pace. And just as importantly, the costs associated with doing some of these studies is falling uh, dramatically. So if you take... Uh, one cutting-edge technology where the entire genome is sequenced, the cost of doing that has fallen, fallen precipitously and much faster than anyone had predicted. So I think where we need to step in, especially for the less common childhood cancers, is to capture the biology 
of every child who may be diagnosed with that cancer, apply some of these new tools, and then couple it with how current therapies work, either positively or negatively. Because one without the other is, is a lot less valuable. But if you put, put the two together where we can begin to identify the types of cancer that simply don't do well with current treatment and then look for potential Achilles heels in the genetic makeup or the epigenetic makeup of those cancers, that's really going to set the stage. And I think the children's oncology group is in a position because the vast majority of children with cancer are treated at a COG center. We're in a position to partner with patients and families to allow us to study those cancers and, as importantly, to allow us with the, the doctors and local institutions to follow how children fare and then to merge those sets of data to really try to prioritize potential new treatments. So how um, you mentioned the cost of some of these are dropping, but how about the turnaround time and the uh, you know point of care testing uh, availability and so forth? Uh, is, do you think we're really that close yet to being able to implement these in our in our clinical trials? Well, I think unfortunately for the majority of studies, we're we're not ready for point of care testing where we literally would do it at, at the bedside. But as you know, for a number of our cancers, we actually do do rather sophisticated tests, and uh, those tests are done at one of our uh, COG reference laboratories. So no matter where the child may be diagnosed, there is a reasonably fast turnaround that allows us to guide treatment for individual children. And so we've done that for a small number of diseases. Obviously, the goal is to increase our understanding so we can uh, expand that. For the rarer cancers, however, I think for the most part, we're at an earlier stage where we're still trying to unlock uh, the keys to what's driving those cancers. And that's where it becomes critically important to try to capture as much information as we can with every child who may be diagnosed with a rare cancer. As a follow <clears throat> Peter, as a follow-up to that, um, as we learn about unique signatures, um, you know, let me give you an example when I ask this question. In the adult world, the more we learn about the molecular signatures of a relatively common cancer, uh, the, more, uh, the more we split up that cancer into perhaps less common groups. So I think even in the adult oncology world, they're starting to face issues of of numbers, although certainly nothing compared to what we've always faced as far as putting a, a full group together for clinical study. We've obviously faced this in pediatrics all along. As we move forward in sub-analyzing and sub-defining the different pediatric cancers, analogous to what we face now with rare cancers as a group, how do you foresee us being able to triage what's most important? Where do we apply our resources? Um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's it seems a bit daunting to the idea of trying to treat a thousand different sub-cancers all at once. Do you have any vision about how that might play out in novel trial designs or, or alternatively? Well, I think you really hit upon some of the key challenges we have. Um, but I think it is an incredible opportunity for our entire field of pediatric oncology. Uh, I think you rightly point out that some of the adults, uh, the common cancers in adult patients, are going to become, in fact, very rare cancers. Uh, 
And uh, we've been able um, to make advances with uh, cancers that would be considered extraordinarily rare in the adult population. And I think, therefore, we're in a position to redefine how clinical research for subsets of patients ought to be done, not just in children, but in fact, adult patients uh, as well. Um, the hope, of course, is that we have a limited number of subsets that we have to go after, and I think there's reason to believe that is going to be the case. I think it's going to be easier to sort out in many childhood cancers than it will be for adult cancers, where the preponderance of the genetic changes may not be fundamental to the malignant process, whereas in childhood cancer, the likelihood that if you see a change, it may be a critically important change. So I think the prioritization has to match where we are in our understanding of science, understanding of disease, and uh, the technology that we have. There are many, many genetic changes. There's only a, probably a small subset for which we now understand how to potentially target with therapy. So the prioritization really has to be a match between our understanding of the particular cancer as well as whether we have in hand a way to target the appropriate target. That has to be coupled, of course, with how do children fare with current therapy. Now, we know that much of current therapy has side effects that are not acceptable, but we have to live with and children and families have to live with because we have no alternatives. But there's certainly some cancers where the overall outcome, everyone would agree, is not anywhere close to where it ought to be. So the prioritization really takes place between where are we with outcome, where are we with the understanding of what's driving a particular cancer, and lastly, what tools do we have at hand to develop a therapeutic for that cancer. And so that's where we would need to focus our, our resources, and that will evolve over time. Um, but without question, uh, the design of those studies and uh, the efficiency of how we do that are, are challenges that we're going to have to step up to. That was a terrific uh, answer. I have, I have a follow-up question for you. Um, a lot of our readers, and I'm sure you hear this from, from families uh, yourself, get a little flustered when they hear that drug development or our pool of targets that you refer to or, or, or agents that can hit these targets generally are developed from the adult oncology world. Um, as we become, uh, we recognize the pediatric cancers are biologically unique, do you see a functional pathway for dr drug uh, development um, that is pediatric-specific already existing? I, I know there's been some work with antibodies for neuroblastoma, et cetera, but do you see a, a pathway in working through COG or uh, with CTEP and CI that would facilitate drug development in a pediatric-specific way? So, Jim, again, I think you're hitting on another uh, challenge that is probably not in the distant future that um, a number of us have uh, given thought to. Uh, a few years ago, I had the priv privilege of serving on an Institute of Medicine, or IOM, committee. Uh, and as you know, the IOM brings together experts from diverse areas, uh, um, 
medicine, uh, basic science, economics, uh, policy, law, and to come up with recommendations for problems that can speak to uh, Congress, it might speak to the FDA, might speak to a number of uh, different federal programs. And one of the uh, major outputs of that uh, meeting was a report on how will we develop uh, therapy for childhood cancer when there is no uh, parallel for the adult cancer. And what was uh, the, re the fundamental recommendation of the IOM report was that it would take a unique entity, a public-private partnership, that in essence was a virtual drug company. And what that would do, it would bridge the gap that currently exists where the discoveries uh, take place in, uh, in our laboratories at, at academic centers uh, across the country, um, but where there's not an economic model for what industry does best, which is make drugs, for industry to get involved directly. But what this virtual drug company could do would, uh, through a combination of uh, philanthropic funds, uh, federal grants and contracts, bridge the gap so that it could bring a novel therapeutic that's specific for a childhood cancer. And where we have the great advantage then is we have a clinical trial infrastructure in the country through the Children's Oncology Group that could be the recipient of the work of this company. So the company wouldn't have to invest in the very expensive process of performing the clinical trials. Where it would invest in would be in the medicinal chemists who have to take a molecule in the laboratory and make it a drug um, through all the regulatory hoops to the production uh, in a manufacturing plant. And it would do it in a virtual manner by uh, reaching out to existing entities to form partnerships and contracts. So this idea actually is beginning to move forward. Um, it's in its relatively early stages, but discussions have uh, occurred with a number of uh, leading academic centers across the country to help form the, the scientific brain trust and uh, scientific advice as far as which targets uh, should be prioritized based on uh, some of the points I raised earlier, earlier to come up with a public-private partnership business model that would be sustaining and to go ahead and develop a drug that's specific for a childhood cancer. So we'll see where this goes, but it's a clearly important gap. Um, that work would be done outside the Children's Oncology Group because uh, it's probably best done outside the COG, but the COG and, and all its member institutions would be uh, the venue where the clinical trials would then occur. So is that Institute of Medicine report online available publicly? It, it is. It, um, it is in the, uh, if you search Institute of Medicine, uh, I was one of the uh, editors uh, of the report, uh, but it's on the National Academy of Sciences website, and uh, uh, one can download it uh, from that website. And I believe the title of it is Making Better Drugs for Children with Cancer, something to that effect. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll put the I link on. I can pull on. it up for you, though. Yeah, we'll put the link, or if you can send it to me, we'll put the link on the show notes on the solvingkidscancer.org website. And is there any 
information publicly about this virtual drug company as well? Or um, too- uh, not yet, but uh, I'm hoping that within the next six months uh, there will be. Great. Yeah, very interesting, Peter. I Hopefully our listeners are uh, reassured to hear that uh, such uh, people such as yourselves are working hard on this, and I- I'm certainly appreciative. That's and- great. So what you've described through that and as well as a lot of the other things we've been talking about in terms of genomic tests and uh, re- you know, stratification and identification of appropriate patient groups and so forth, uh, it sounds to me like we may be entering a new era of how to do clinical trials. And are there things that, that you, you've made changes in the structure or the function of COG or new initiatives that you've launched or are planning to do so in the near future to address this new era? So we're busy at work on that. I think um, we know that we're going to have to get a lot more efficient um, to keep pace with the pace of scientific discovery uh, that awaits us. Um, We're a rather large enterprise, as I said. I think we're about 5,000 members and have over 100 trials. And I think uh, it evolved. The, The organization really, even though it's 10 years old, its predecessors evolved over 40 uh, to 50 years. So some early changes were uh, really focusing on um, giving uh, accountability and authority to leaders in various disease areas, be it in uh, leukemia, neuroblastoma, brain tumors, go down the line, um, setting expectations, uh, priorities, and letting rather talented people go ahead and, 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 and make some decisions and move the process forward. We've set up a number of task forces um, within the organization that are going to try to standardize components of treatment protocols um, that often take a great deal of time to develop, and it always seems like we're reinventing the wheel. And so uh, the idea the idea that we have is, much of the research protocols uh, can be modular, whereas once you have your key idea and key questions and how you're going to design it, much of the protocol itself can be plugging in various modules that we know we need. And so we think that's going to cut down uh, significantly both on development time, but also it's going to decrease uh, uh, downstream effects where we seem to be constantly correcting very small um, uh, sections of research protocols, uh, the more we standardize, the less often we'll have to do that. So I think overall we have um, four different task forces working on areas ranging from how do we handle um, uh, biospecimens from patients uh, in a uniform manner, both to um, submit them as well as to make them available for researchers to how do we administer standard chemotherapy, um, to how can we uh, simplify uh, how often we do imaging uh, for various cancers, be it MRIs and CTs. So I think the work product is going to emerge over the next 12 to 18 months, but we clearly have to um, be able to shift resources from repetitive tasks to resources of high-priority research. 
Um, you know, uh, Peter, we've talked a lot about, you know, therapeutic uh, models and how to, you know, improve uh, the outcomes. But in terms of uh, survivorship and cancer control issues, what are your thoughts on that and in its future in COG? We've known for um, many years uh, that when we treat a child, we're not just worried about the acute side effects, but we're worried about the lifelong side effects. The children we cure have life expectancies uh, anywhere from 70 to 80 plus years. And so that's a long period of time where uh, some of the effects of our treatment might display themselves. And we're in a fortunate position that we're close to uh, 80% of children uh, being cured today of cancer. What that translates into is about one in just over 300 adults, I believe, is a uh, most recent figure, and it may be, uh, I may be, mis- may be getting the data incorrect, but a very high fraction of adults today are survivors of childhood cancer. So this has become a very large uh, population of survivors that we need to understand what medical issues they may be facing for two reasons. Obviously, to improve their lives, but also to inform current generation of uh, treatments as far as what we should do differently uh, as we learn about some of these later effects. We've learned a great deal, as you know, about the uh, cardiac effect of some of our therapy, um, the impact on uh, brain development from uh, radiation therapy, and you can really go down the line as far as virtually every organ system being potentially at risk for different therapies. So survivorship uh, studies, uh, we have some extremely talented investigators that are leading uh, the way there, and I think that's going to be an area of research uh, that is going to become increasingly important simply because we've become increasingly successful in curing children uh, with cancer. So, uh, Peter, do you think you can put your, uh, or have a look into your crystal ball for a second and tell us what you think the biggest advances will, advances will be for the, in the next five years in pediatric oncology? Well, on the, on the discovery side, on the laboratory side, I think over the next five years, our understanding of what the driving processes behind childhood cancer, though that information is going to uh, incre- increase and expand at, a, at, I think, a pace that we really can't imagine. We're going to know more about what drives the malignant process for children with cancer in the next five years than we've learned in the past 50. So it's going to be an era of discovery, without question, a a remarkable era, era of discovery. The challenge, of course, then, is how do we take those discoveries and make better treatments? And I think there's enough data and enough uh, early data that in certain areas, we really are going to bring targeted therapy into the everyday care of certain cancers. Are we going to be, are we going to completely get away from chemotherapy? Probably not in the next five years. Is our targeted agents going to be embedded in a number of treatments for childhood cancer? Absolutely. So in summary, Five years from now, our understanding is going to be remarkable. 
The challenge that we'll bring is how do we then develop the targeted therapies that are directed at what we think are the fundamental changes in the cancer cell. And um, to develop clinical trials that can very efficiently get at those questions. Well, that, I think, is a nice a tone of hope that we can probably finish up on here. A good way to end it. So, uh, Peter, I thank you very, very much for being with us today. It's been a terrific conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. So thanks for being here. Thanks, Peter. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a good day. So I'm, I'm hoping that if uh, any of our listeners do write in, that you'd be happy to uh, field some of their questions if I send them to you or even join us for another episode someday. Would welcome the opportunity for both. Great. And to our listeners, if you uh, would like to send in questions, remember the email address is twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. And the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.